4: Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Ken Burns country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at Let It Roll Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at ww.pantheimpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James discuss episode six, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which covers the rise of Chris Christofferson and a new generation of Nashville songwriters, Mr. and Mrs. Country Music, George Jones and Tammy Wynette, Johnny Cash's emergence as a superstar, and the nitty gritty dirt band's successful attempt at rapprochement between musical generations. Email us at letterrollpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll, or should I say country roll, the belatedly conceived name for this mini-series I'm doing with James Porter, my co-host. And we're talking about Ken Burns. Hey, James. And we're talking about Ken Burns country music documentary we're up to episode six will the circle be unbroken which covers roughly 1968 to 1972 james big doings. how we doing and not doing well doing well fighting a little bit of a cold but but you know hanging hey, in hey. there hanging in there yeah. another four year episode the last episode covered four years so this this eight-year period from 64 to 72 is getting two full episodes entire decades have been covered and, and the next two episodes are going to cover uh, a decade and a decade and a half each so is this just ken burns boomer centric mentality or is country music really that epic for this eight-year period i
2: think it is because there was a lot of stuff happening you know it's like on the one hand i mean you had a lot of people resisting the change and you would do a lot of people trying to force the change you know, there were like a few who kind of met it in the middle, you know, like say a Waylon Jennings or a Willie Nelson, you know, and even they don't really like, you know, come to fruition till like, you know, 72, you know. But then again, you had like on the one side, you had like, you know, the Chris Christophersons, who we'll hear from later, you know, kind of the change. On the other hand, you had, you know, things like uh, Oki from Muscogee or Welfare Cadillac or what's that one record? Hello, Vietnam by Johnny, Johnny Wright. You know. yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, Guy Drake, I think, isn't it? Um Johnny Wright. Yeah,
2: Guy Drake, Drake he, Yeah, Guy Drake was well for a cat, like Johnny uh Wright was a Hello Vietnam, but yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hello Vietnam is a heavy one. That came up in my uh playlist getting ready for this show and wow. <laughs> I mean it, and, and it,
2: that, that was pretty early on too, like right when people just starting to just start to march against the war, you know.
1: Yes, absolutely. So a lot of conflict, generational conflict, cultural conflict is going on. And they start with a snippet of Leon Russell doing a version of Will the Circle Be Unbroken um, from the film about him with the crazy name, something like sometimes a poem is a naked person by a great filmmaker whose name I'm blanking on. This is also the film that has – Less blank this is correct yes and um, this is the same movie that George Jones did a version of take me on that that turns up in um, tales from the tour bus and and is all over YouTube so a really important documentary but I thought kind of a strange choice to pick Leon Russell to open the episode because even though he does a duet album with Willie Nelson later on in the 70s and is kind of peripherally involved with the explosion of the Austin scene and Willie Nelson and that He's not really a country guy, but he is doing kind of country gospel-ish material in this period. So, again, they well, seem to really... have
2: a, a couple, couple of straight ahead country records. Those like a little bit after the period we talked about, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's he's going to come along later. But I, I think I'm just thinking uh, this episode is one where Ken Burns's personal background is really coming in, that you're getting this from the – viewpoint of a I'm fighting the urge to say Yankee so forgive me um <laughs> oh, okay. but f- from a from a northerner who is not a country person and a boomer and so people like Leon Russell and Chris Christofferson and Bob Dylan and Graham Parsons who are all going to get lots of coverage in this episode are really right. massively important to him and they are important figures in American music and country music so I don't have a beef with that but this is one where I'm gonna have to get a little crucial with him because they leave out Jerry Lee Lewis and Conway Twitty barely gets – he has a second or two of screen time in the context of novelty songs in a duet with Loretta right. Lynn. But I thought that was a real missed opportunity to cover these prodigal rockabilly guys. These, these are the guys, the young people who left country music in the 50s to be rockabilly artists and come – and I don't want to say crawling back, but – they kind of crawled back because their careers died on the pop charts and Jerry Lee Lewis has right. died for a number of reasons. But they come back to country music. Well, the kind of
2: thing. I mean, if, if, if you notice, like a lot of the country stars from like the late 60s and early 70s, they had a rock and roll pass. I think at one point in 69, like right around the time, like when Waylon did Brown Eyed, Handsome Man and Buck Owens did to uh, Be Good, it was kind of like a hip thing for like country guys to like, you know, do remakes of old 50s rock and roll hits. You know, so I mean, they, so it, that, that was kind of part of their roots along with Grand Ole Opry, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, nobody really, nobody really uh, points that out, but it happened.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and they also don't talk about the Elvis 68 comeback special, which to me is what kicks off all that Rockabilly revival stuff. Because Elvis does this comeback special in 68 and you get not just country artists doing Rockabilly songs, but you get The Who and Blue Cheer. And it's just all over the place. Yeah. And they also could have tied Waylon in. With MacArthur Park, which he does in this era, another Jimmy Webb song. They're going to mention um, Glenn Campbell doing Wichita Lineman again briefly because they're focused on Johnny Cash and his TV show. But they work those things in. But I do wish they would have worked Waylon in a little more. They get Willie Nelson in in this episode, not in a full way, but in the way they did Roger Miller last time where they have a segment about Willie Nelson and how he's not fitting in in Nashville. But let's go ahead and summarize the the big four – Segments of this episode, the things that they tease at the beginning, and I'm going to go ahead and read the little lines that Peter Coyote reads reads about each of these topics. So first, I've got Chris Christopherson, who is quote, a young poet who rejected his path, the path his parents had chosen for him, bringing to country music an honesty and lyricism rarely heard before. Then we've got Johnny Cash, a quote restless rebel who'd been kicked out of the Grand Old Opry and would triumphantly return and welcome others from every style of music to join him. Next, they've got George Jones and Tammy, Tammy Wynette, quote two singers tortured by demons who would turn their troubles to song and briefly find peace together. And then bluegrass, which um, would resurface and find a way to bring the generations together. So those are those are the big four. Uh, topics that they cover in this episode. And again, Johnny Cash has been a theme throughout multiple episodes. He's been ever since the 50s episode, and he kind of has taken the mantle, fittingly, since he married into the Carter family, of the Carter family. And this is the one narrative thread that goes through the whole series, is this Carter family you know Mother Mabel and the Carter sisters, Johnny Cash and right. Jerry Carter, all the way up to roseanne carter Ka- uh, Roseanne Cash sorry um so that they, they kind of have this royal family narrative that they're they 're going with um, George Jones and Tammy Wynette are are newbies on this episode um, and george jones they they mentioned i think in the fifties episode they showed a little bit of white lightning during the rockabilly mm-hmm. phase but they definitely could have talked about him last time they have to talk about him this time and they do and then bluegrass mm-hmm. is one that they're very partial to and talk about and they start with a little segment about the new lost city ramblers of all people who um mm-hmm. pete Seeger's brother mike Seeger, and, and i think the point they're trying to make with them they're telling the story of how Bluegrass was kind of marginalized off-country radio after 1963, that it just clashed sonically with the Nashville Countrypolitan sound and also with the Bakersfield electrified Telecaster sound.
2: Well, you and- know, one thing I've kind of noticed, you know, kind of on that on that realm, we were talking about that mo- that multi-CD series by Bear Family, dim light, thick smoke, and loud music. Yeah, great, great classic series. classic series. Right, You'll notice that, I mean, I was like, you know, going back through it, you know, it's like, it's really amazing how many bluegrass records there are prior to 1964. Yeah. You know? Yeah. because you, Growing up when we grew up, it's like you kind of think of bluegrass, kind of like, bluegrass is kind of like to country music, where blues is to soul music. You know, it's like, kind of popular to an extent, but in general, it's kind of like marginalized in the corner for not being as modern as whoever was out. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. I mean, it's for country folk, the country of the country yeah. folk in this case, and uh, really, you
2: know, kind of, it kind of confines like you no know, indie labels and festivals, not so much like you no know, out in the top forty, you know.
1: Yeah, but that, it filled in a puzzle, a piece of the puzzle for me because growing up reading about people like Bill Monroe and Flat and Scruggs, they would be sort of shunted off into the bluegrass chapter. But they would mention how they had all these hits and they were on the Grand Ole Opry and stuff. And it, and, and it just didn't quite jive. But when you hear these mixes of song, you know, radio chart hits, country radio chart hits from the late 40s, 50s into the early 60s, the bluegrass stuff blends in pretty well. I mean, because, you know, you're dealing you know. with pretty, pretty raw country, you know, Hank Senior, Ray Price, etc., and And, you know, it fits in seamlessly. But in after the mid 60s, they're kind of exiled. And it's people like the New Lost City Ramblers who are coming out of this urban folk revival who, right. these guys were the ones who were the most focused on really reviving the Harry Smith anthology of American folk music, which is honestly just a sampler of commercial blues and country records. You know, it's it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, he redefined stuff as folk music that had originally been seen as commercial music when it was released. And, you know, the New Lost City Ramblers took it Real serious, did real good versions, and they brought Mother Maybell to the Newport Folk Festival, which opens the floodgates for these bluegrass artists to go to these folk festivals, start playing the college campuses, and, quote, bluegrass began to create create its own world. With the big exception of Flat and Scruggs, who have a massive number one hit, country hit, and a pop hit. I don't think it was a number one pop hit, but it was a big pop hit with the Beverly Hillbillies theme song in 1963. Right. You also foggy, had
2: minor success too in 67 with the theme with the Foggy Mountain Breakdown, because that was used as theme in the, to uh, the Bonnie and Clyde movie.
1: Exactly the the Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, um, just a classic movie that was absolutely on the cutting edge at the time, and also a big popular success. So, right. And, and and that's a trend we're going to see into the 21st century with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That Bluegrass is going to have this ability to kind of leapfrog the country gatekeepers by breaking into pop culture through movies and TV. So flattened and Scruggs do that. And, and I want to go back before we t- start talking about George Jones and Tammy Wynette because we did underserve Loretta Lynn dramatically last time. We covered her at the top of the show and then yeah. – my my bad. I got I got a little excited about wanting to go back and cover Little Jimmy Dickens, who <laughs> we had missed in other <laughs> episode, and so we we missed Loretta. But you know they they really do a good job in the previous episode of painting Loretta as the most feminist of these female artists, the the one you know doing Fist City and Don't Come Home a Drinking, and. Oh, Oh, yeah. And, you know, they got Jack White singing her praises, Elvis Costello singing her praises. Uh, they talk about the Coal Miner's Daughter song, which went number one country. I think it charted pop as well, becomes the title of her autobiography later on in the movie with Sissy Spacek. So, you know, Let Lynn, absolutely epic and continues to be very powerful in this 68 to 72 period and really all the way through the 70s into the 80s. And, in this episode, they set her up as a foil for the new girl who's not who was one of the women not covered in the last episode. They covered Jeannie C. Riley and a number of other, you know, Dolly Parton and a number of other female singers that came along in Loretta Lynn's wake, just as Loretta, in turn, had come in Patsy Klein's wake. But they didn't talk about Tammy Wynette. And I think that's to set this up because they talk about George Jones and then they bring in Tammy Wynette. And I guess that's just the way you have to do it. I mean it' Those two are so paired. I mean, when Tales of the Tour Bus did their episodes on George Jones, it was George Jones and Tammy Wynette in a big two-parter. Right. I I mean, how do you feel about it? Do you think they should have gone in and and squeezed George Jones into the previous episode as well and then brought in Tammy and him as a duet, or is this about the right balance for you?
2: It's about the right balance. I mean, you can't really talk about one without the other, but the point is George was around long before Tammy Wynette. You know, so we kind of have to talk about like George alone, you know, and then, you know, I mean, and Tammy did kind of make a difference, you know, in his life. You know, it's like for one, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, she, I mean she, first of all, she got him to dump that flat top haircut, which is looking pretty dated by nineteen sixty nine. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and he, was saying, he was and it seemed like he was singing a lot more of love songs after Tammy gets gets the picture. You know
1: yeah and and these these duets they do are just classic and and let's go ahead and cue one now this is one of their i think this was the second duet hit they had uh with billy Sherrill producing and this is george jones and tammy Wynette doing the ceremony And that was George Jones and Tam- Tammy Wynette duetting on The Ceremony, which they co-wrote with Shel Silverstein, their producer. And this is the f- first song in a series. I think the first duet they did together was Take Me, which George had already charted with as a solo love song. Brings in Tammy for the duet. But The Ceremony is the first of the series of seemingly autobiographical songs about the relationship of Mr. and Mrs. Country Music, which they, they blaze on their bus as soon as they get together. And, and they get into the whole story. I mean, George Jones – And really, Tammy, too, they're both in that sort of Hank Williams or Brian Wilson or Kurt Cobain category of just hapless people that that suffered enormously despite their great talents and despite their great success and just were constantly miserable. And, you know, like Ray Walker, the Jordanaires, has a great quote about George Jones in this segment where he goes, I'm not sure if he didn't know he was important or if he if he fought being important. And there's definitely this sort of. And again, this is a slur I shouldn't use, but idiot savant quality about George Jones, where not known as a thinking person, um, you know, the guys in his band made jokes about you know his IQ and room temperature and things like that, but he <laughs> really was an absolute savant of song interpretation. And when they tell the story, just the, the story they tell here of You know, he's the child of this abusive alcoholic father who would literally drag him out of bed, beat him with a belt, and force him to sing with tears running down his face. And then shortly thereafter is putting him out at bus stops to earn money so dad can buy booze. I mean, right from the beginning, singing is tied up with trauma for George Jones, and that never stops.
2: Yeah, yeah. And also, too, I mean, I hate to read too much into this, but – I was thinking about that today, you know, uh, looking over the notes. It's like Tammy Wynette, she never looks happy. No. Even when when she's smiling, it's like she's got a lot on her mind, you know?
1: Yep, yep. And they've got that great Brenda Lee quote about Tammy Wynette where she says, Tammy snatches at happiness were few and far between. And, you know, that's definitely true. And the biography of Tammy is – just as wild and crazy as georgia she she struggled with pills maybe not to the degree he struggled with alcohol and cocaine but still enough to ultimately kill her i mean and there's just all kinds of craziness multiple abusive husbands multiple husbands not all of them abusive but plenty of crazy drama and um, yeah, but an epic epic singer, and, and they and they talk about Billy Billy Sherrill that they bring in, and, and this is an angle I hadn't really thought of Billy Sherrill because generally he's always been introduced to me as one of many country pilots and producers. But I think the fact that they point out that he was an acolyte of Phil Spector and that he was going for a different sound than Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley, he was going for that big wall of sound that Phil Spector for and later... For some reason,
2: his his take on country politics doesn't bother me as much as Chet Atkins did. I can't really put my finger on it. I mean, maybe because, I mean, unlike Chet Atkins, he kind of knew when to pull it back because not everything he produced sounded like that, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's true of Owen Bradley who could do basically just straight hard country for Loretta Lynn. Um, right. Yeah. But then go full, you know, pop with Brenda Lee. Um, but Chet Atkins. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I love Chet Atkins. A lot of me
2: his productions are, I mean, I respect him for what he did, but it's like, you know, I mean, a lot of his productions are defanged, you know?
1: Yeah. To, to a certain degree. But again, he still produced plenty of, of, of great tunes and, um, you know, we don't know what they would have been like had he not been there. We only have this one reality. We can't do A B testing on on reality, so we don't know what it would have been like had mm-hmm. he had, you know, more of a hardcore country attitude or a Billy Sherrill approach. But but, you know, they get that Phil Spector thing in about Cheryl and and for me that was that was a good ah piece falling into place and from there then they go to johnny cash um who's going to have multiple segments in this episode and they talk about his follow-up to the live at folsom prison album which is a live at san quentin album and the number massive 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 hit off of that boy named sue written by shell silverstein and they use that to introduce shell silverstein who's just a legendary figure the the for anybody our age oldsters like us Beloved Children's author. My kids kind of like right. him but not, you know, um, not the way we did in the 70s. And then a, a genius country music songwriter and and they got Bobby Bear, you know, saying as a small Jewish kid in Chicago growing up loving in her tub, that was strange. But then Shell was strange. You know, but at the same time he was also the most creative person I ever met in my life, which I think is a the best two-sentence summary of Shell Silverstein I've ever heard. And then they use that yeah. to to introduce all these novelty songs that were big in this period like little jimmy dickens who finally gets a number one hit with may the bird of paradise fly up your nose uh roy clark's thank god and greyhound jerry reed's classic she got the gold mine i got the shaft and then loretta lynn and conway twitty get in there with you're the reason our kids are ugly so and this is a segment they probably could have done at any point because they haven't really talked about novelty songs that much maybe in the 30s episode they did but this this hokum tradition is a big part of country and, and i'm glad they covered any, as any- I sit
2: here you know from the period we're talking about as i sit here a lot of the country the country novelties i can think of are mainly by like one hit wonder types like the guy drakes or the leroy pullins you know i mean they may, maybe maybe might have had more than one hit but they're only known for like the one song they disappeared you know yeah i mean because yeah. i mean because i mean when. I mean, it's pretty safe to say that, you know, when Loretta Lynn dies, God forbid, she's not going to be known as, the, she's not going to be remembered as the person who gave us half, you know, who gave us half of, you are the reason our kids are ugly, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. She
2: has a lot of more substantial stuff, you know? Yeah, you
1: know, absolutely. But Guy,
2: Drake will be, Guy Drake will always be welfare Cadillac to anybody who dares remember, you know?
1: And, terrible and d- on and. Indeed. And uh let's go ahead and hear a little Loretta Lynn. This is Loretta Lynn doing a Shel Silverstein song that was a big hit for her in, I think, 71. This is One's on the Way.
0: And the White House social season should be glittering and gay. But here in Topeka, the rain is a-falling. The faucet is a-dripping and the kids are a-balling One of them a-toddling and one is a-crawling And one's
1: on the way
0: I'm glad that Rocco Welch just signed a million-dollar pack.
1: And that was Loretta Lynn singing Shell Silverstein's One's on the Way. And that, to me, is... It shows Silverstein was more than just the novelty song guy, that he could do country songs for an artist as important as Loretta Lynn that fit right into her oeuvre and and don't scream, hey, this is a funny joke novelty song. Although it's funny, it's witty, it's clever, it's also socially pointed and just a great country song. I mean um, I know my mom loved – my mom, mother of six, uh, loved Loretta Lynn and, and One's on the Way and The Pill – and you know coal miners daughter all that stuff so she was just massively important and Chelsea silverstein was a big contributor to her success and and that whole um thing while walking kind of on the edge of novelty i mean it, it's clever but i wouldn't say it's a novelty song and that was that was sort of the the artistry there and then the next segment they go into is bob dylan in nashville which they technically should have covered last time because it's 66 when he goes down there they talk about charlie mccoy the legendary session yeah. guy who played acoustic spanish style guitar in desolation row on Dylan's 65 album um, highway right. 61 and bob johnson was the producer who hooked that up and and johnson was just talking up nashville and when the band the robbie robertson live on helm band couldn't cut it for Blonde on Blonde, which is hard for me to imagine that those guys couldn't cut it. But for whatever reason, it wasn't working. And Bob Dylan takes you know, a couple of his guys, Al Cooper and Robbie Robertson, down to Nashville, produces Blonde on Blonde, and massive success stays there for all of his um, next few albums up through Nashville Skyline. And that brings in this floodgate of folk rockers, which isn't necessarily central to our story of country music. But it fits in perfectly with Ken Burns and the story he's trying to tell, which is the story of rappochement between um, folky rockers and, and country. And so you get Joan Baez, Buffy St. Marie, Leonard Cohen, Peter, Paul and Mary, Gordon Lightfoot, Dan Fogelberg, all these people come in and record in Nashville, which right. brings us to the Birds and Graham Parsons, who – You know, I did a whole episode of Grant Parsons and love Grand Parsons, but I hadn't really realized how massively unsuccessful he was in life. I knew that he was one of these guys who was bigger posthumously than he had been in life, but I never really realized just everything the guy did, basically failed at the time. And they talk about the recording of the sweetheart and the rodeo in Nashville play a couple of the songs and then um, talk about their appearance at the Grand Ole Opry and how they basically get booed for having beetle haircuts before they even get a chance to play. And um,
2: And the funny part is about rock and roll standards, they look pretty conservative. Oh, extreme. Got, I mean, they, they, the Because the, the, the way the, when the, when the birds got their hair cut to play the Grand Ole Opry, you know, they basically got, I mean – those like those like Glenn Campbell haircuts, because Glenn Campbell was probably like the longest a man was wearing his hair in country music in 1968. But by, yeah. but by, Fillmore, but by Fillmore East standard, you know that was like you know, and they're wearing suits too, if you remember. You know, yeah. so, but by Fillmore standards, you know they were actually really conservative. You know, I think one thing that gets me about the, about the birds, and I think I think it was pretty funny. It was this wasn't country documentary, but it has a lot to do with what we're talking about. Um, I once read an issue of Rolling Stone, for like maybe 72, where they did a an article on uh, Tammy Wynette, right? You know, and as part of the Tammy Wynette story, um, they did a thing on uh, Billy Sherrill. And Billy Sherrill, I mean, he was basically, he basically took over as the gatekeeper of the country sound in Nashville. And I think he was quoted as saying he hated when the rockers like Bob Dylan and the birds will come to Nashville to go country because their concept of country was like 10 years behind where Billy was taking it. You know, here it was, Billy was bringing in like the string sections and you know, the violins and the, you know, you know like the string sections and the voices and all this other sophisticated stuff, you know, and here's like Bob Dylan and the birds basically trying to take it back to 1959. I think yeah. that's kind of telling. I think
1: so too. And also he's bringing in the big echo chambers and that big Phil Spector sound, which, you know, um, the Beach Boys are going to pick up on Bruce Springsteen and Meatloaf are ultimately going to pick up on. So I think he has some points there, but, you know, it's this tug of war and, and, um, you know, this back and forth thing. And my thing with the birds was growing up, listening to the birds and the flying burrito brothers, and I first encountered the Flying Breedar Brothers on that Smithsonian collection of classic country music. So to me, they were just country. Like they didn't sound like Leonard Skinner or ZZ Top that I saw as southern rock. They sounded to me like country. It was only later on. When I listen to them in the context of their time that I realize, aha, they are adding these soul song elements and the bass playing is soul style and the steel guitar by Sneaky Pete is just crazy. Um, Totally unique, brilliant stuff. But so I I get where they weren't quite rock. And they were just frankly ahead of their time. Um, You know, this is going to be enormous Five years later when the Eagles start doing it and then ultimately it's going to have a bigger influence on country music. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm OK with him talking about Graham Parsons and Chris Christopherson and Bob Dylan so much and ignoring Jerry Lee Lewis and Conway Twitty is because in the long run, it was these outsiders that kind of influenced the future of country music more so than these prodigal rockabilly guys. And then, and then they take us back into Chris Christopherson for a deep dive into his story, um, which, again, I sort of bristled at, because his singing voice... I, I remember some Rolling Stone review a long time ago that the worst thing about the singer-songwriter era was you had singers who couldn't write, like Carly Simon, trying to write songs, and you had songwriters who couldn't sing, like Chris Christopherson, singing songs. Yeah. And, but honestly, at this point in time... With the whole Leonard Cohen revival and everything, Chris Christopherson's singing doesn't sound that bad. It's strong. His range is limited, but you know his voice is strong, deep baritone. But I was kind of annoyed that they played so much of Chris Christopherson's versions of his songs instead of, say, the Ray Price version of for the Good Times, or and it really bugged me when they played Christopherson's version of Sunday Morning Coming Down instead of Johnny Cash's. Um, but I mean, you know, creative choice. I, I can't really squawk about that I guess, they,
2: I guess they sort of kind of had to because they kind of had to spotlight Chris the man and also too I mean he sold you know I mean after that his, around the time of the second album he was selling as many you know, many records as like almost as many records as the people who were recording his songs
1: it's true you he know? went gold twice yeah I had two two gold albums yeah, yeah. yeah. and what's
2: all what's all interesting though like I mean cause even though that was like a prime time for like you know country songwriters I mean Maybe he wasn't included because there wasn't enough room for him, you know, with all all the stuff going on, but there was only one other songwriter who was getting as much traction in Nashville back in the early, back in 1970, 1971 as Chris Christopherson. And that was Mickey Newberry. Yep. He's starting to have a bit of a revival of soap, but he was totally ignored for the special. I mean, I guess because Mickey wasn't as much of an iconoclast as Chris, because Mickey had short hair and, even though he did write some pretty revealing stuff, he wasn't quite as shocking as Chris was, you know,
1: yeah, and also he's not available to be interviewed and 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 there's not as much footage of Christopherson, of him as there is of Christopherson, so I don't know if I've ever seen performance footage of, of Mickey Newberry. But one thing that really
2: Actually, comes across... I have. I mean, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but I mean, uh, it because ex- he, had, he had like a hit record with uh, the American Trilogy. I think he did a couple TV shows uh, off of that, but yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's a little, that's in the mid-'70s. Elvis, of course, um, the most famous performer of that uh, piece. Exactly. Um, the one thing that really comes through, though, is what a pretty boy Christofferson was, and you can really see why Hollywood was drawn to him and why johnny cash putting him on tv made his career because the guy is a, a adonis you know he's a, a really good looking guy and, and let's hear from our sponsors and come back and we'll summarize a little bit of the chris christopherson bio and so yeah i think another reason they zero in on chris christopherson is because his story is really compelling i mean here's a guy who's a, a Rhodes scholar who went to oxford who was a instructor at west point a uh a pilot in the u.s air force whose father was a u.s air force general and he walked away from all that to become a janitor in nashville and i, and I think the first time i ever read about chris christopherson was in the context of a johnny cash uh book and he's introduces this janitor at, at columbia studios in, in nashville and and you know that really got my attention at the time. I was like, Chris Christopherson was a janitor? <laughs> and then when you find mm. out the backstory, it's even more, you know, kind of compelling. And and it's one of these things where talent draws talent because he randomly visited Nashville right before he, you know, he's sort of this transition point in his career. And he's about to, to make a big move in his military career. And he, he hooks up with Mary John Wilkin, who was the co-op, co-writer of Long Black Veil, vale. And she and Cowboy Jack Clement take him backstage at the Grand Ole Opry. And I mean, if I went t- to Nashville, I would not be hooking up with, you know, one of the great songwriters, co-writers, of one of the greatest country songs and one of the great country producers. Like, you know, it's like there's something special about Chris Christopherson, where he's immediately reached out to you by people like that. And then, you know, he sees Johnny Cash and it Seeing Johnny Cash's set, even though he's appalled at how you know he calls him skinny as a snake, and he can tell that the guy's got an amphetamine problem, but he's electrified by his set, and he gives up everything. He's disowned by his parents, ultimately divorced by his wife, takes him four years uh, to get any traction, and then you know Fred Foster comes in, the the Monument Records guy, as as the sort of hero. and and Foster's great on camera, so it's easy to see what they tell him, but you know, Foster signs him as a songwriter. Finally, somebody takes a chance on him. And and Christofferson just wanted one of those salary type gigs, the kind that you know Doc Palmas and, and Mort Schumann had at Hill and Range a few years earlier. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just he just wanted a nine to five songwriter job. And Fred Foster's like, sure, I'll give you what you want, but you're also gonna cut records for me. And I loved Foster's quote. I thought I was hallucinating that no way anybody could be this great. He said he described hearing Chris Christopherson's uh, songs for the first time. And so, uh, you know, Foster turned out to be right. And and I thought, also thought the story of Foster describing hearing Janis Joplin's version of me and Bobby McGee before it came out was really touching and powerful, because as much as that song has been played into the ground, that version of that song, Imagining hearing it for the first time, man, it must have been immensely powerful. And he also must have known, uh, wow, we were about to make a lot of money. <laughs> Since he was the name of <laughs> <about> that song, <laughs> forgive mean, my cynicism. I mean, I'm
2: I'm assuming that Roger Miller probably did it first.
1: Yeah, you know, he did. And and he had a span, decent with, country hit.
2: Within the span of two years, I mean, it's like that got that got traction from everybody, from Johnny Mathis to Black Sabbath. I mean everybody took everybody took a shot at that you know
1: yeah yeah and Janice is the one who took it to pop number 1 and you know i'm sure made chris Christopherson's fortune and then that's where they segue into johnny cash on uh, his uh, tv series on abc weekly tv series which was taped at the ryman auditorium they make a big to do about how you know he'd been kicked off the grand Ole opry for his drug-addled behavior a few years earlier and with this show he just reaches this superstar level That I think they're right. They said it was unprecedented stardom for a country performer, and I don't think anybody touches that level. I mean Glenn Campbell is close to that big, but he's not truly a country artist. I mean he's coming out of the LA session, pop scene, former member of the Beach Boys, and even though he charts country, he is country – he's not country the way Johnny Cash was and, and, and nobody gets that big again until Waylon and Willie in 76 or Dolly Parton you know uh, in that same 70s 80s period so you know Johnny Cash is the biggest of the big and they they he's really like, like
2: the token country the token country record in a pop band's collection you yeah know?
1: yeah to this day
2: is same thing you know
1: yeah yeah the Rick Rubin portion of his career in the 90s got all my nieces you know these millennials who don't really listen much to any country they've all got their johnny cash records so yeah he that was kind sure. of his gift and and he shared the wealth on his tv show and they make a big point of how you know he he had country artists like eddie arnold but he also had stevie wonder Joni mitchell yeah. pete seeger he 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 defied the censors and and had pete seeger on there who'd been blacklisted for his you know uh communist uh, affiliations Eric Clapton, Roger Miller just and had a gospel song in every show. And and if you notice the gospel choirs integrated, which is a big deal right. in nineteen sixty-nine. And and I thought I was really happy that they had this footage of him and Louis Armstrong doing Jimmy Rogers Blue Yodel number number nine, which as we talked about before, Louis Armstrong played on the original. So to me, that's just cosmic. I mean, talk about may the circle be unbroken, getting Johnny Cash and Louis Armstrong, who's at the end of his career just a few years from the end of his life and just reconnecting that jazz country connection, which is totally.
2: I think think Louie's last LP before he died was a country album. I think you're right. uh, I mean, I think think it was played for laughs. I mean, it's not exactly the lost country soul masterpiece or anything, but I mean, he did it.
1: Yeah. And it might've been
2: around the same time on Johnny Cash's show, you know?
1: I'll have to look into that. I was, I've been, um, Getting ready to read a bunch of Louis Armstrong stuff. and I, I remember coming across that the other day, but I can't remember what year it was. But anyway, so so Johnny Cash is kind of this uh, hero who shares the wealth in his stardom. And then they bring in Merle Haggard, who comes out as a conflict at Johnny Cash's urging uh, because of this. And Johnny Cash outs him on the show. And Cash explains why he's doing this. You know, if you do it this way, those damn dirty magazines are never going to have anything on you. And it's brilliant media strategy and and somebody like Johnny Cash was absolutely a brilliant media strategist. That's how you get to be Johnny Cash. It's not just, you know, um just singing talent or whatever. That's, you know, if you're as great a singer as George Jones, you can get by just on that but if you're Johnny Cash I think you have to be more of a strategist to, to get as big as Johnny Cash did and, and then they also talk about the Bob Dylan thing and again the tell is having Roseanne Cash on there to talk about how cool she was at school the next day after Bob Dylan uh, and Johnny Cash duet on Girl from the North Country on on the show and was was I blind or was Bob Dylan? as good looking as he ever got in that segment. I mean, he, he totally looks <laughs> like a star on that, on that bit. I was, uh, I've always kind of written cool. off that Nash, Nashville national skyline era of Dylan, but wow, that was a, quite a performance.
2: He kind of came back with a haircut and he had like a little, like, you know, a little bit like just the right amount of razor stubble to look handsome and rugged, you know? And yeah, you know,
1: and he's tan. He looks healthy, which a far yeah. cry from amphetamine Bob of just you know five years earlier. So uh, big doings. And again, Funny story
2: about that appearance. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think uh, Johnny Cash told this story. I think at one point, it's like you know, because Johnny Cash's show, like a lot of TV shows back then, it's like I mean Johnny Cash was a man of integrity, but you know, you know he he or his television show, they weren't above getting ghost every now and then. Originally, when Bob was going to come out, they were going to have like this really ugly looking set. Of, I've seen it, too. It was an ugly looking set of like this run down general store. The two of them were supposed to be sitting in front of, you know, and Bob sees that in the dress rehearsal. He's like, no, no, I can't be standing in front of that. My, friend, my friends will laugh at me, you know, and so, so, jo- so and Johnny's like, so what do you, you want to do? And they just kind of like sat, in, you know, did against a solid black background, if I remember correctly. You know, and that kind of and that kind of added to it. So really, if it if it given like you know a typical network television variety show, corny looking background, that would have taken away from, and that would have been like a clear cut explanation as to why Bob Dylan didn't do that like television in the '60s. You know, but <laughs> and, they see it through the Wishes, put it in front of, like a. Now, what, were they like sitting in front of a fireplace or a stark black background? It was something. It was something it that wasn't too distracting.
1: Yeah, you know, it was it was got... a real undislated set. I can't remember it, it wasn't a black background, but I don't remember I don't remember noticing the set, which I think which I think tells you everything. But let's hear another song. We're about to talk a, a little bit more about Chris Christopherson, and this is Roger Miller doing Loving Her Was Easier than anything I'll ever do again. I have seen the morning burning golden on the mountain in the skies.
4: aching with the feeling of the freedom of an eagle when she flies
1: turning on the world the way she
4: smiled upon my soul as I laid
1: down and that was Roger Miller doing Chris Christofferson's loving her was easier than anything I'll ever do again and they they use this to segue. They use Christopherson's appearance on Johnny Cash's show to segue back into Chris Christopherson and and how he's become one of the hottest songwriters in Nashville. Although it's annoying to me that, you know, they mentioned Sammy Smith doing help me make it through the night. And uh they mention For the Good Times, but they don't mention or play Ray Price doing For the Good Times, which to me is the ultimate country countrypolitan song by Ray Price and justifies his whole switch. I, one of my best friends growing up, his dad, was kind of our musical mentor. This was a guy who had seen Chuck Berry live. He'd seen Buddy Holly many times, being from the Texas Panhandle. He'd seen Elvis live. He'd he'd paid to see Hank Williams and George Jones and never seen them <laughs> multiple times, and he he would always tell us of the heartbreaking day when he went down to the record store, buys the new Ray Price album with all with all the money he's got. He's he's a teenager, and he gets home and Ray Price is done sold out. He was like, boys, that was a dark dark day. And and uh, but to me well, for the funny, good like, times, you know, like, you know, go, you know, go ahead. People, like
2: touch your pops up to then, you know. That wasn't the first time he went Country pop. Oh, no. He'd like been
1: Country for a while by that point. And actually made yeah, some yeah. really great concept albums um, in, in the mid-60s. Ray Price's discography, I've been diving into it the past couple of years and it holds up all the way through. But I can see if you were a hardcore country fan in the early 60s and Ray had been the only guy with fiddles and still guitars for so long mm-hmm. and, then, and then the strings come in on him too. I, I know why uh, my friend Lonnie Park was Dude. upset. But... uh Anyway, that was a pretty minor thing, but then they get a great little segment where they have Charlie Pride reciting, kind of singing uh, the lyrics of "Loving Her Was Easier," and man, is that good! And and I just had this—it just came to me in a flash that Charlie Pride was the redneck whisperer. I feel like that guy is just cadnip to, to, to rednecks like myself. Like you just cannot resist this guy. Like what? You know, like when Chris Christopherson sings it. You know, it's great lyrics and everything, but when Charlie Pride does it, oh my God, you know, and uh, really brings the lyrics to life. So a great little segment there. And then they work in the other two big developments on TV at the time. And honestly, I felt like they could have done a lot more on these two and that one is the glenn miller glenn campbell show glenn miller jesus apologies to everybody involved in that one glenn campbell and they and they talk about him doing wichita alignment they don't mention jimmy webb um but obviously the songwriter behind that and galveston and a number of campbell's hits at the time both country boys from oklahoma and uh, arkansas respectively and then they talk about hee-haw and they just give it a brief segment and I think they get the basic gist of it across, and that they don't mention Laugh-In, but they they do share how people in Nashville bristled at the whole, you know, overalls and and the the crude parody uh, that they were doing. But they do get across that the country music was presented really artfully and sincerely and authentically and that to me is the secret of hee-haw's staying power plus it was funny i grew up on that stuff and i'm glad they had ryan and goodens uh talking about how her grandma was like you know don't get between grandma and her heha on saturday night yep. you know and, and i could so relate to that because my aunt and uncle aunt Vi and verne you know, it was it was hee haw, and then Lawrence Welk, and that was just sacred time. You didn't, you know, we ate dinner and we sat down in front of the TV, and you kept your mouth shut and you watched those two shows all the way through. So
2: it's really funny um, how hee haw and Lawrence Welk had the same audience, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, a, a big chunk of it, but hee haw. Hee Haw, I would watch when I was home alone. I didn't go with, I couldn't cross the limits well, <laughs> by myself. So <laughs> Hee Haw had a little bit of intergenerational appeal, and, and they do talk about how um, you know Hee Haw gave uh, Linda Martell uh, opportunity, and she's an African American singer. And um, right. you know, let's go ahead and hear the song that she did on Hee Haw. This is Linda Martell doing Bad Case of the Blues. And That was Linda Martell doing Bad Case of the Blues on Hi-Ha. Linda Martell kind of a lost artist. She she came in the wake of Charlie Pride, got a little bit of attention, got a few opportunities, and then, you know, doors were closed. I haven't deep dived into so I don't know the full story. I don't know what other factors well,
2: but. More, more, more story that, I don't know if you saw it, but Rolling Stone actually had the story on Linda Martell about a year or two ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's where I was I was getting all my research from. So, you know, and she's definitely
2: I I don't want to say she was bitter, but I mean there were a few things that did force her to, retire. I mean, so some people kind of getting on the case, you know, so she kind of had to retire.
1: Yeah. 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 She was, she was uh, just not accepted. I mean, there was basically once country music had accepted Charlie pride and then celebrated ourselves for, Accepting Charlie Pride, we stopped accepting other black people. Just a classic, classic all-American well, move right there. I think um, she was kind of, kind of double-damned
2: because I mean, she was not only was she black, but she was a woman, and yep. she was a female singer on a label where the biggest-selling uh, country singer on the country singer was a woman, Jeannie C. Riley. I think she kind of implied that there was like a little bit of a rivalry between her and Jeannie on the label, you know? Yeah, yeah, even and. The, the, even, Gene was the proven hit maker, and and uh, and L- Linda, put, you know, she was only around for like a few minutes, unfortunately. You know? Yeah,
1: yeah, and and it's it. Anybody who's dealt with singers knows, and stars of any type, just how jealous and petty and paranoid they can be. So if you've got somebody on your label that sees you as a rival or is afraid of you, and they're way out ahead of you, that can be really hard. Um, oh, and then yeah. they they segue into. Uh, these hardcore conservative songs that start coming out. They get Bill C. Malone out to talk about how country music prior to the 60s when it got political, which was pretty rare, it tended to be populist. Um, even if Woody Guthrie wasn't necessarily wildly accepted by the country audience, his songs were done by a lot of country artists and his politics were reflected in almost you – know, it was populism and anti-elite, uh, anti-money kind of songs that tended to be – but once Vietnam happens, you get this real reactionary strain – and and we talked about Hello, Vietnam, Goodbye, Sweetheart, Hello, Vietnam. Um, you know, and even people like Loretta Lynn did a song, Dear Uncle Sam, which isn't that kind of strident right wing stuff, but it's still about that song. And, and then they got Jan Howard with his, her song, My Son. And they tell the whole tragic story how, you know, she records the song about her son. She's got two sons in Vietnam. One of them gets to hear it, but doesn't get to write her about it because he's killed immediately. And then her youngest son, who hadn't been drafted or, or volunteered, Commit suicide as in the wake of that tragedy, and so, you know, tell her whole story and how Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash had taken her under wing and invited her on tour, but then there's a really ugly moment where Jen Howard talks about some peace activists knocking on her door and trying to invite her to go on a on a walk, and then she threatens to kill the guy, and it's just, uh, you know,
2: coming from Texas, that segment right there, I almost want to turn off television because like they should have ended on that note you know, because I had a hard time following the rest of the, the episode. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying she was right or wrong, but that was just so powerful. And the thing about it is, like, I don't have a hell of a lot of Jan Howard, you know, in my collections, maybe like a, a like, you know, maybe a Barry Stardust compilation here or like a 45 there. But she, now, I mean, especially after seeing that segment, you know, where she threatens to pull out her pull out her Magnum.
1: Yeah, you
2: know, she's <laughs> Protesters. It's like she always did sound like she was over the edge in a lot of ways. I mean, it's like yeah. the only thing the only thing separating her from uh, a Tammy Wynette. It's like both women seem to kind of have an unhappy edge to them, you know. But 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 Jan Howard. Oh my God. I mean, I really. I mean, even in her songs, she sounds like you know she would like you know she would like you know rub somebody out with a gun if they if they rubbed her the wrong way, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She's she's. This reactionary strain that we've seen so much of recently, she was personifying it. It's also telling, I think, that Johnny Cash was skillful enough politically to navigate bringing her on board at the same time that he's doing you know, a song, What Is Truth? And they tell this whole story how Nixon wanted him to do Welfare Cadillac, and no way is Johnny Cash going to do that. Not his song, doesn't believe in it. He does What Is Truth, which is not one of the great Johnny Cash songs, but still – pretty powerful that he stood up and they also talk about how earl scruggs played the march on the pentagon with charlie daniels in his band who later grows up to be this extremely right-wing hank jr type person but at this point in time he's on the left and he's protesting the war so i'm glad they got that in
2: was about a hippie who gets stuck in a redneck bar
1: yeah uneasy rider um
2: Right, right. He was obviously on the hippie side, and as far as I mean, of course, he later updated the '80s with a song called "Uneasy Rider '88," and uh, you don't want to know about that one. That's that's just god awful. But yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he he took a long journey, like so many baby boomers did. Then they get to the yeah. big song of this period, the the big political song "Okie from Muskogee" by Merle Haggard, um, and and. Bill C. Milan tells how it originated as a joke. They get Ray Benson in to talk about – to give the hippie country fan perspective of how betrayed they felt and also to out Merle Haggard as a big pot smoker. um, Right. Which uh, I always found hilarious. And and, uh, in the 90s in Austin, there was a story. Somebody had sold a mixing board out at Willie's Ranch and met Merle Haggard who was like, kid, boy, you got any of that X on (laughs) you? So, <laughs> yeah. so Merle was open-minded chemically, um, but they don't get into the fact that his follow-up was almost Irma Jackson, which is a song about a, an interracial love affair with a, with a white man and a black woman. But he blinked and chickened out of doing it despite being encouraged to do it by Johnny Cash. I talked to David Cantwell about that on an episode. And and then he they also don't talk about the fight inside of me, where he doubles down and goes full Jan Howard and gets fully ugly. Um and oh, yeah, yeah. you know, which it's a great song and I love it, but I definitely understand why that topped him out and why a lot of people who were around at that time wrote him off as a reactionary. Um and it did limit his growth. He never became a Johnny Cash-style superstar, which I think he had the talent and the potential to do it. And then from there, they go into Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson in Nashville never really hit it off. They talk about his songs, uh, his successes as a songwriter, his 14 flop albums with Chet Atkins. They don't talk about Wayland though, who's also suffering with Chet Atkins, although he's slightly more successful than Willie you know, even getting some hits like MacArthur Park, which is one of the weirdest-ass things. Uh, I, Waylon Jennings doing MacArthur Park, just, like that song in itself blew my mind as I can't believe this is, people are seriously doing this. And, th- and then when Waylon Jennings did it, I was really dumbfounded. It, it, eventually, I've kind of come around on MacArthur Park, but anyhow. the,
2: uh, they and, and talk- and the funny part is, everybody has the idea, it's like, MacArthur Park was fully Waylon's idea. Nobody had to twist his arm to do that.
1: No, and he yeah. goes back and redid it a few years later. I mean, he because he didn't like um, he didn't like Chid Atkins version of it. So, yeah, he I mean, himself, when, when,
2: when when that record came out by Richard Harris, he had the eight track tape of Richard Harris Harris's Tramp Shining album, which had MacArthur Park on it, and he played that song over and over and over until he figured he had to do it. <laughs> you know, next thing you know, I think somewhere somewhere down the line, he meets Richard Harris. And Richard greets him like, you bastard, you did the song better than me. You know?
1: <laughs> Which and wasn't hard since Richard Harris couldn't sing at all. It's one of the just craziest. He wrote that song as part of a suite for the association. It was supposed to be part of the six-part harmony thing and then ends up doing it with a British actor who can't sing. But that's that's a diversion. And then they wrap up the whole – episode with a whole big segment on the nitty gritty dirt bands will the circle be unbroken album and they kind of used them to contrast with graham parsons and the birds and others who tried to reach across the country audience and the country national establishment and didn't succeed but these guys did because they invited you know mother mabel carter earl scruggs those were the camel noses under the tent as it were and, and those folks then helped him get doc watson merle travis the jimmy martin we vassal Clements.
2: we know bill, bill monroe refused he yeah he turned yeah. down
1: yeah. yeah he did and and another career mistake from old bitter bill but um roy yeah. acuff who had initially refused came on down even after trashing him in the newspaper and they uh you know talk about it as what it was it was a Massively successful album. I think it took 25 years to go platinum. But nonetheless, my older brothers, who are into Willie and Waylon, had that album. And... For me, since I had the luxury of getting into their record collections and they'd already gone back and bought the Bob Wills and bought the Carter family and bought the Doc Watson albums, I would just go to the source and kind of skipped over the nitty-gritty dirt band. Um, but preparing for this episode, I went back and listened to that album all the way through for the first time. I'd heard segments of it. It's solid stuff. It's a really weird album. I mean they got to make it because they had this number one hit with Jerry Jeff Walker's Mr. Bojangles. Go ahead.
2: From whatever- they don't even take that many lead, the leads, the lead vocals on that record. Aren't they like taken by the by the guests?
1: Yeah, um, mean, it's it's, very... it's you're well into what would have been like side three before you start getting um the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band doing lead vocals on that album. It's it's Roy Acuff.
2: It's big it album for like a various artists compilation. You know, yeah, so many guests. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, it's 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 a very unique album. Triple album. I mean. It sat next to George Harrison's um, All Things Must Pass triple album, and, and in my brother's collection. Um, I don't know why he, he sorted his triples and then his, had his double albums in another section. But anyway, that album obviously was a big, big deal to boomers. Who were coming from the rock side and coming into country, and it served as a great introductory – and folk fans too because the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band were an L.A. folk rock group who, like I said, had this massive number one hit. So that's how they got to do a triple album and got to camp out in Nashville and do this just – I don't know of any artist before or since who's done an album like that where you have – multiple guest stars come in and take the lead you know it's one thing to have earl scruggs play a banjo break on one of your songs but it's a total other thing just hand the mic to maybe al carter and do a yeah, number do. of Paul carter family songs so um you know it's one of these things i rolled my eyes so hard when i realized they were gonna the title of this episode will the circle be unbroken and and, and that they were going to make a big big hoorah about this album because I'm just kind of allergic to Americana. I, I fight it, and I and I do love a lot of the Americana artists, but the movement well, as
2: a whole—it's like, like country western in a museum. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's like it's the last a... case. Yeah, yeah, it's an analog to the folk revival. It's it's this just a new generational update on the folk revival. But again, I love a lot of the folk revival stuff. So, you know, it is what it is. You know, but on the whole, I, I enjoyed this episode a lot, it had some really powerful footage, um, and I can deal with them featuring Will the Circle Be Unbroken because it was a big album. It, it did have a big generational influence. So, you know, looking forward to the next one. Any concluding thoughts, Mr. Porter?
2: Uh, well, even though the episode uh, leaves off there, it's worth noting that Bluegrass did kind of have like a minor revival after uh after uh, after that Will's Circle on Broken record. So, I mean, in the top 40, you had Uneasy Rider, which you discussed earlier, and also uh, um, uh, Dueling Banjos by Eric Weisberg, who just passed away last year.
1: Yep, you know? yep, yep.
2: And on and, and uh, top of that, it was like right around that time, too, you started seeing like a lot of like, I guess you call them new grass kind of groups, like these sort of like, these hippie bluegrass bands started popping up on small indie labels like Rounder.
1: Yeah, you
2: know, yeah. Yeah you know, it's like, I mean, and uh, and if you look in the country and bluegrass sections of, uh, mo- of a lot of huge record stores, you'll see a lot of the records that were like, you know, put out by those kind of bands back in the day. You know, I mean, it's yeah. like, I mean, it didn't I mean, it wasn't so much that like, you know, bluegrass more or less took over, you know, but it kind of kind of that kind of gave a new lease on life. You know, I mean, it might have died down like as the 60s died down. But after, like I say, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Eric Weisberg, Charlie Daniels, a few other things, it kind of got back in the, the mainstream again.
1: Yeah, it 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 and one of the nitty-gritty dirt brand guys talks about that, how every year they were talking, oh, this year bluegrass is gonna be big and, and it's never gets enormous, but it's slow and steady, and people have long, successful, upward trending careers through this whole period in bluegrass. And it and it lasts. I mean, bluegrass is still Actively played. I'd bet you money more bluegrass records are made in this century than country politan records by a wide margin. So, um, you know, definitely a, a genre, a subgenre, with staying power. So, that's it for country. No, Go ahead.
2: I mean, if you if you lived through the 2000s, it's like I mean, of I mean shoot, we had like we had like the Dixie Chicks and Old Brother Wartel. Yeah, yeah, so,
1: and, you
2: know, and back, that kind of brought back the banjo for a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: And even brought back old-timey, pre-bluegrass. My niece, one of my nieces for a while was in an old-timey. We're not bluegrass, Uncle Nathan. We're, we're old-timey. So, you know, uh, exactly. <laughs> cool stuff. So anyway, that's it for uh, Country Music Episode 6, the Ken Burns documentary, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And we'll be back next time to talk about Episode 7. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and James Porter will be back next week.
4: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Country Roll will be back next week when James and Nate discuss Episode 7, Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way?, which covers the rise of Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and the Outlaw Country Movement, Dolly Parton's crossover success, and more. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts,
0: not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com home dash trial. With one of the best
3: savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even